Well, join me in John chapter 14. You knew we'd be there. John chapter 14, where we are finally bringing this chapter to a close this morning. John chapter 14, and we have been working our way through these promises that Jesus has been offering his apostles to calm their heart. That is why we have called the series Tranquil Hearts in Troubled Times. Certainly a perfect time for us to look at this topic over these many weeks. But Jesus is offering a series of divine promises to his apostles. Verse one says, their heart is troubled, their heart is stirred, it's agitated. But what we saw last week is that soon their troubled hearts would be filled with fear. It's going to get worse for them and terror as they will see their master betrayed by one of his own and then bound by Roman guards and then executed in the most gruesome of ways possible. What we have in John 14 are Jesus's final words to his apostles before he leaves the upper room and heads for the garden of Gethsemane. And these are departing words that are filled with love and hope and joy. Even though evil is about to break loose like never before. Look at verse 30. In Jesus' words, even though the ruler of this world, Satan himself, is coming, implied after me, Jesus says. Satan is seeking to destroy me. Soon he will seek to destroy you. This has been a precious night for Jesus and his men. They have shared a final Passover meal together. Jesus has symbolically showed the extent of his love for them. Back in chapter 13, we are told that Jesus loved them to the end, to the max. He shows this love by washing their feet. That's a picture of his incarnation, a picture of his coming sacrifice. And he has also comforted them in chapter 14 in their sorrow. He's offered them the most staggering promises recorded anywhere in the Bible. Promises of a heavenly home. Promises of eternal security. Promises of personal access to the Father through prayer. Promises of being used by the Father to do even greater works than Christ. That's a crazy thought. That's conversion regeneration, promises of an indwelling spirit. And through that spirit, the promise that both the Father and the Son would indwell them, make their home in every believer. Promises of an inspired New Testament. We see that in verse 26, that the helper, the spirit will come. He'll bring to their remembrance what he said. Then you have verse 27, a promise of peace. All of these are promises of peace. Peace I leave with you, peace. My peace I give to you. Peace through promise has been the theme. That inner shalom we all desire. The wholeness of heart, contentment of soul, security of Mind. It's what Herb prayed just earlier. 
This is Jesus' departing gift, these promises of peace. And they're needed promises. Why? In the words of J.C. Ryle, because heart trouble is the commonest thing in the world. That's true. No rank or class or condition is exempt from it. No bars, no bolts or locks can keep it out. Partly from inward causes and partly from outward. Partly from what we love and partly from what we fear. The journey of life is full of trouble. Even the best of Christians have many bitter cups to drink between grace and glory. Even the holiest of saints find the world a veil of tears. It's amazing imagery. It's so true. A veil, a valley of tears. Interpersonal disappointments. The heartache of loss. The sorrow of death. The fear of the unknown. Heart trouble, Ryle writes. Heart trouble is the commonest thing in the world. It's what makes the Psalms so real to us. Over and again, the Psalms show us that the believer is not exempt from the heartache of this world. Think of Psalm 69. Psalm is entitled, A Cry of Distress. Psalmist writes, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. We've been there. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. This is real life. Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. This is overwhelming trouble on all sides, in all directions. And do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Approach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. Psalmist is alone. He's looked for comforters, but I found none. He's been forgotten in his sorrow. I'm afflicted and in pain. This is then followed up in Psalm 70. Psalm 70 is entitled, Prayer for Help. Psalm begins in verse one, O God, hasten to deliver me, O Lord, hasten to my help. The psalm closes in verse five, but I am afflicted and needy, hasten to me. Only you can solve this. Hasten to me, O God. Bring me that comfort, give me that peace. Because only you are my help and my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. This is then followed with Psalm 71, entitled Prayer of an Old Man for Deliverance. This is now the pain and heartache that lasts your entire life for some. Again, Ryle is right. Even the holiest of saints finds the world a veil of tears. 
And yet, despite this pain and through these tears, what is Christ's promise? Look at verse 27. His promise is peace, wholeness, comfort, harmony, security, peace, I leave with you. This is my parting gift. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. I saw this last week after the service talking to a couple, tears of sadness, it was obvious hurt, there was concern, and yet there was the peace of Christ. There was joy, even in sadness, joy in heart. This is the paradox of the Christian life. We are granted peace, though pained. We can ask how, we can ask why. How can we, the believer, experience peace when chaos abounds? How, why, because, continue verse 27, because Christ promises his people that he gives a peace not as the world gives. Christ's peace is different. Christ's peace is supernatural. Christ's peace is grounded in the Holy Spirit of peace who indwells us and will never leave us. And so here's our compassionate Savior on this night of all nights. And he's concerned for these men, concerned for us. And he is moved by his apostles' sorrow. And thus he offers them, and again us, promises that will ease their sadness after he leaves them. Promises that will renew their faith after they fail him later this night. Gives them promises that will sustain their commitment to him even when the hatred of the world breaks out all around them. That's coming up in John 15. The world hates me, the world will hate you. These are all promises of peace we too can cling to as we walk through our own veil of tears, whatever that may look like for us. So all of that brings us to the end of this chapter and the final two heart-calming promises Jesus offers his troubled apostles. This is promise 11 and promise 12. Let's read the conclusion of the chapter together. Start in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. Verse 29. Now I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me, but so that the world may know that I love the father, I do exactly as the father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Begin with promise 11. Promise number 11, in the midst of our fallen and sorrowful world, we can be unshaken. We can be unshaken. Unshaken by the sin that surrounds us, undeterred by the evil that runs rampant 
unmoved in our faithfulness to our Lord. Why? Because nothing, nothing, no evil, no sin, no sorrow, no heartache occurs outside of God's ordained will. Nothing occurs outside of God's ordained will. Notice what Jesus tells his apostles in verse 29. Now I have told you before it happens. What did Jesus tell his apostles before it happened? Answer, literally, everything that was about to take place later this night and into the next day. There was no detail Jesus left out. There was no detail Jesus did not know what happened to him on this night. Nothing surprised him. Nothing caught him off guard. And we can trace this. We can trace this starting back in chapter two. This is very early on in Jesus's ministry. First Passover, Jesus enters Jerusalem, enters the temple, and he says this, destroy this temple. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. I'm gonna be destroyed. Decimated is the word. Demolished. That's how I am going to end. And John tells us he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus knew he would be executed. In chapter three, same time frame, Jesus then predicts that he would be raised on a cross. John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must, must, divine necessity, must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is cross language. Repeated in chapter 8, Jesus says, when you lift up the Son of Man. Repeated in chapter 12, if I am lifted up from the earth. He'd be destroyed, but now the detail, he'll be crucified. Jesus also knew that he'd be betrayed. Not only betrayed, but he knew who would betray him. Back in John 6, Jesus answered, did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? I see right into your heart. He makes this clear in chapter 13, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. It's around the dinner table. So clear, so detailed. Jesus even tells John who this betrayer would be. John 13, the apostle John leans back on Jesus's bosom and said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. He knows the betrayer. Judas fools everybody else. Everybody else, he can't fool Christ. Jesus also knows that the apostles would flee him. Peter would deny him. Look back at chapter 13 at the very end. That's how the chapter concludes. Verse 38, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you, Peter, have denied me three times. 
To bring the other gospels into play, just to see how detailed Jesus is, Mark chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus knows that the religious leaders would condemn him through an unjust trial. He knows his fate. Mark 10, 33, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. He'll stand before Pilate, condemned by the Jews, condemned by the Gentiles. He knows this. Mark 10, 34, he knows he'll be humiliated. They will mock him and spit on him. He knows he'll be flogged with a whip. They will scourge him, Jesus says. And Jesus knows that he'll be buried. He'll be buried. Not thrown into the garbage dump. It's where the criminals go. It's where those on the right and the left went to the garbage dump to be burned. Not there. Jesus knows that. The detail after his death, which is why he told his apostles back in chapter 12, let her alone so that she may keep it, the anointing, the perfume, so that she may keep it for my burial. He knows that detail. And so at this point on Thursday evening, Jesus has told his apostles every detail, every detail. But note, it's all evil. It's all evil. The evil that will come against him. And so the question then is this, how did Jesus know all of this? How does Jesus know the exact details of his demise? And you might say, well, he's God. He's the God-man. He knows all things. But it is in his incarnation, he limits his knowledge. So he knows these things not because he's God. No, he knows these things for a different reason. And I think we're given a clue in verse 29. Notice it again. That phrase I have told you before it happens, that phrase has been used before. In fact, it's been used just a few hours earlier this night in the same room. Look back at chapter 13 and verse 18. Notice what Jesus says there. I do not speak of all of you, I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. This is so key, that the scripture may be fulfilled. And then he quotes the psalm. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. That's betrayal. And now watch the next statement, verse 19. From now on, from now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass. So connect those two statements. I am telling you before it comes to pass with that the scripture might be fulfilled. So how did Jesus know the details of what would happen to him in a matter of hours? Here's how, because he knew the scriptures. He knew the prophecies. Let's put it in the point of this final promise. Jesus knew what his father had ordained to happen to him. 
He knew the Father's will. And again, mark it, it's all evil. It's all sin. Every detail Jesus predicts, evil. And yet every detail had been foretold in the Old Testament and then ordained by his father. Jesus knew his body would be devastated. How does he know this? Because of what the Old Testament promised. Isaiah 52, speaking of the Messiah, his appearance was marred more than any man. He'll be destroyed. Psalm 22, my strength, the Messiah is speaking, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. Jesus knew he'd be raised on a cross because that is what Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 promised. Psalm 22, for dogs have surrounded me. It's so detailed. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers, they encompass me. And then this statement, they pierced my hands and my feet before crucifixion is known. Isaiah 53 builds on it. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He'll be raised on a cross. He knows that. He knows he'll be betrayed by a friend. Why? Because that's the promise. That's the will of his father. Psalm 41, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And then you have a detail added in Zechariah 11, amazing. Messiah speaking, prophecy. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. That's what Judas would betray him for. Jesus knows the apostles will flee him. Peter would betray, uh, deny him. Why? Because of Zechariah 13. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. They're fleeing you later this night. Or Psalm 38, my loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague. They want nothing to do with me. Only John and Mary are there to watch Jesus die. Jesus knew the religious leaders would condemn him to death through an unjust trial. Jesus knows this, why? Isaiah 53, he was oppressed. That is to say, he comes under the authority of someone else. He's oppressed and he was afflicted, mistreated, humiliated. And yet he did not open his mouth, why? Because there's no testimony that needs to be refuted. It's all lies. He did not open his mouth. And then this, promise, prophecy, by oppression and judgment, translated oppressive judgments, translated this way, by a corruption of judicial power, through dishonest legal proceedings, he was taken away. Jesus knows he'll be humiliated, mocked, spit on, because that was the role of the Messiah according to Isaiah 50. I gave my back to those who strike me. I gave my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. 
He knew he'd be flogged. That's the ordained plan of the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging, flogging, we are healed. The only positive prophecy is that Jesus knows he'll be buried, not burned in a pit. Again, why? Because that was what his father had determined for him. That's why we read in Isaiah 53, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Supposed to be burned in that garbage dump. Yet there's a reversal. He was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence. This is how Jesus was able to tell his apostles everything before it happened including exact details, because all of it, all of it, all of the evil, all of the evil, all of the sin that Christ would be afflicted with, all of it was known by God and promised by God and written down by God and ordained by God. All of it. And note here, it is not that God looks down the corridor of time to see what happens and then has to rework his plan and respond to evil. That's not sovereignty. No, Isaiah 46 is abundantly clear. I am God and there is no other. How do you know who God is? Here's how. I declare... I ordain, I decree the end from the beginning and everything in between, including evil, including sorrow, including the fall. God is not the author of sin, but he's the ordainer of sin. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose, my purpose will be established. God ordains only that which will cause his purposes and plans to be fulfilled. We're living in God's plan A, folks. It's plan A. And then listen to the promise here that God makes. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. I'll accomplish all my good pleasure. The most heinous evil ever to be committed, the crucifixion, of Christ, even that evil ordained by God. The evil we will see unfold in John 18 and John 19, the evil orchestrated, look at verse 30, evil orchestrated by the ruler of the world who's coming. Even that evil will accomplish the Father's good pleasure. Satan will not surprise Jesus on this night. How could he? That's all been ordained by the Father and promised in the scriptures. And so you have a contrast that's being drawn here. Verse 30, Satan is the ruler of the world. And yet what do we see In verse 29, I have told you before it happens, Satan is the ruler of the world, but he's still a tool being used by God's sovereign hand. 
Thus, what is the application, these apostles and us who are in Christ, what is the application that we are to draw from all of this? How does this ordaining sovereignty give us peace in a fallen, sinful world? How does God's sovereign rule calm a troubled heart? Notice the end of verse 29. I have told you before it happens, so that, here's the application, so that when it happens, when evil runs roughshod over me, when Satan has his way, when Judas betrays me with a kiss, all according to my father's decree, all promised in the scriptures, when all of that happens, here's the application, you may believe. You may believe. Not believe in Christ in saving faith for the first time. That's not the point. No, believe in the sense of remain faithful. You'll remain faithful. When you see evil happening to me, let that strengthen your faith, not destroy it. But seeing all that evil actually fortify you and cause you to endure, not cave. Why? Because not only has Christ known it all, all along, but it's been decreed by the Father and written down by the prophets. It's true, the apostles will falter. That is true. The apostles will falter later this night. It is true they will be shaken to their core for the next three days. They will flee. They'll be fearful. But they will not give up their faith fully, will they? They will not give up their faith. Peter will deny Jesus, but then he will break down in tears in repentance. The disciples will hide in a room but then they will proclaim the gospel to the very ones who put Jesus on the cross. I'm telling you all of this so that you may believe, so that you will remain faithful. They will continue to believe. They will grow in their faithfulness. In fact, it will be through their failure that they will grow stronger. Their faithfulness to Christ will be fortified, buttressed, so much so that they will withstand the severest of satanic attacks. And they will do this until the end of their life. Jesus' promise comes to fruition. Again, how were they able to do that? At least in part, it was believing Jesus' words here. Sin doesn't cause our faith to cave. Sin shows the promise of Christ, the ordaining will of God. It's a reminder that nothing, even the worst of evil, nothing occurs outside God's sovereign decree. One commentator put it this way, the encouragement is clear if Jesus in his purpose used the dark forces 
of chaos convulsing within the cauldron, which was Jerusalem during the Passover feast time, he can still, bring it to us today, he can still master and harness the darkness which daily threatens our personal lives. He is still the Lord of the night who can make darkness the vehicle of his praise. Christ still knows everything before it happens. Now, because he's been glorified sitting at the Father's right hand. And in his sovereignty, Christ's sovereignty, the Father's sovereignty, even the spirits, in their sovereignty, they have chosen not to stop any of the evil that we see today. Could they? Absolutely. They've chosen to stop none of it. Why? Back to Isaiah's statement. Because in his wisdom and in his goodness and love for us, he's declared this to happen to the praise of his glory, his good pleasure. This is how we guard our hearts from becoming fearful and troubled. We remember that our God knows every detail of life, every detail. Not even a sparrow falls. The word is die there. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground without the father knowing it. He knows every detail. And he has ordained the end from the beginning, including every evil, every trial, every trouble, every injustice. Because in his wisdom and in his love and his sovereignty and his goodness, he has determined to accomplish all his good pleasure. That's our hope. That's our promise. And thus, as the chapter ends, we see promise number 11. In our troubled world, we can be unshaken. Unshaken in our steadfastness to our Lord because nothing occurs outside of God's ordained will. It was an amazing promise for these men on this night no less amazing and hopeful for us today. Leads into promise number 12. Promise number 12, here's the conclusion now to the upper room discourse. Be vocal. Be vocal. It's easy in a world filled with godlessness and evil. It's easy to circle the wagons, isn't it? Remain silent. That's not our calling as believers. We must be vocal, but please let me note this, not vocal about everything. We've been called to be vocal about the most precious reality there is, vocal about the gospel. Be vocal because Christ's gospel is the message of hope this world needs to hear. It's the final promise. Christ's gospel is the message of hope this world needs to hear. The most important message our world needs to hear is not the dangers of socialism. The most important and serious message our world needs to hear is not inflation or who caused it. The most important message our world needs to hear has nothing to do with gun control. Nothing. It was all temporal issues. 
The most important message our world needs to hear is the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is why verse 31 ends in this way. Jesus says, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. I will submit myself to Satan's evil ways. And I will offer myself to sinful men. I'll be mocked. I'm giving myself to be mocked. I'll be beat up, dressed up, humiliated, nailed to the cross. I'll hang there until I die. All of that is what the Father commanded him. And Jesus says in no uncertain terms, I'm committing myself to that call. To that gospel, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Why, Jesus? Why are you leaving this upper room? Why, Jesus? Here's why. Two reasons. Because Jesus loves his Father's glory. He loves his Father most. It's verse 31. I love the Father. I love the Father I'm concerned with his glory, his praise. And Jesus knows that the Father will be most glorified when he, the Son, is crucified. The Father's holiness will be put on display as the Father pours out wrath against his sinless Son. The Father's grace will be put on display as he receives his son's sacrifice and then forgives and reconciles all who come to him through faith in Christ. Look back to chapter 12 for a moment. Verse 27. Here's Jesus's commitment. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, this hour of death and humiliation. And sacrifice save me from this hour? No. For this purpose, I came to this hour. And notice verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Put your glory on display through my pain and my sacrifice. That's what the Father commanded him to do. And he goes to the cross because he loves his father's glory. D.A. Carson has written this. Jesus chose to die because he loved the father and desired above all else to do his will. We diminish the grandeur of the plan of redemption when we neglect this divine element. So often, what do we say? Christ goes to the cross because he loves you. True statement, but even more, than him loving you, he loves his father. The cross reveals how profoundly the eternal son loves his father and how utterly he obeys him and pleases him. Back to chapter 14, verse 31. This is why Jesus, knowing all of that evil that awaits him, he tells his apostles, verse 31, get up, leave the table, leave. We need, you need to come with me. Let us go from 
here. I cannot stay in the safety of this room. That is not how I will glorify my father. I must go to Gethsemane. I must be betrayed. I must be crucified. And notice who's in control of all of this. Again, verse 30, the contrast. The rule over the world is coming, Jesus says. But now in verse 31, Jesus says, let us go and meet him. I'm not gonna wait for Satan to come to me. I'm coming to him, going to him. Again, why? Because the glory of my father depends upon it. I love my father. It's his main concern going to the cross. There's a second reason why Jesus goes to the cross here. Reason number two, because the salvation of the sinner depends upon it. The salvation of the sinner depends upon it. Verse 31 again, but so that, and now the key phrase, but so that the world may know. Not only intellectually, know in a saving way that the world may know that I love the Father. That is why I do exactly as the Father commanded me. The same evil world system, the world, mentioned in verse 30, saying is the God of this world, the ruler of this world. That same evil world system needs to hear the gospel. So I'm going to the cross, Jesus says, so that the world may know. And by implication, how is the world going to know? It's by you, apostles. You're going to go. I'm going to send you. Bring it to us. It's by us, Christians, today. That's how the world knows. The world must know this gospel message so that it can so that it can embrace it and Satan's chains can be removed. And why is it so necessary for us to bring that gospel message? Because every unbeliever is a child of the devil and a servant of the ruler of this world. And I cannot help but think that John, as he writes this, records Jesus's words, he has John 1, 10 in mind. It's where he started. He said that Jesus was in the world, this evil world system of darkness. The world is blinded by Satan. The world did not know him. The world did not know him. Blinded, hardened hearts, closed eyes to the Father's glory. But now chapter 14 concludes and Jesus says, here's the answer. Here's the answer. It's my gospel. I must go to the cross because I love the Father. I must go to the cross because sinners need to hear this message. It's the only gospel that will break Satan's grip on sinners. It's divinely powerful. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so we need to ask ourselves then at this point, what does the world know about Christ through us? Does the world think that Christ is like the epitome of capitalism? 
What does the world know about Christ through us? Does the world know that Christ's gospel is the only message of hope for them? Does the world know that the Son has glorified his Father by paying the penalty for sinners? Does the world know that there is a Savior, not from socialism, but there's a Savior from Satan? It's a little bit better, right? Not a Savior from inflation, a Savior from hell, from God's wrath. We get distracted, don't we? What are we most vocal about? That's the key. What are we most vocal about? Put it this way. Have we become concerned with other messages, other gospels? Promise number 12, in a world that promises peace but cannot deliver that peace ever, we must be vocal about Christ's gospel for it is the message of hope this world needs to hear. And all of that brings us then to the end of this chapter. And Jesus says, get up, let us go from here. I'm heading towards Gethsemane. This is Christ's gift to us, promises of peace, cross-bought promises offered by Christ himself. And if we cling to these and we believe these, Our heart will be guarded in this troubled world. And we will be grounded in this uncertain day. And we will be freed to proclaim the glory of the Father through the gospel of Christ's peace. Look at verse one. If we trust these promises, our heart will not be troubled. Why? because we will be believing in God and believing in Christ. Father, it has been a journey certainly through this chapter, yet I pray that you would instill these promises in our hearts and that we would love them and cherish them. That through your indwelling spirit, that you'd give us the faith to cling to these in these days and that we would be freed, we would be freed to proclaim this saving truth, the glorious truth of your glory seen in Christ's cross. Thank you for the hope through that. Keep us faithful, make us faithful to be those ambassadors of our Savior. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.